Welcome to the Vault Podcast. Classic music reviews presented by IV Creative. Now, here's your hosts, B. Cox and the crew. Greetings and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the Vault Podcast. Classic music reviews presented by IV Creative. It's a perspective of the classics from a fresh point of view. We appreciate you for taking your time and lending your ears to our perspective. You could be anywhere listening to anything, but you're right here with us, so we thank you. With you today is yours truly, B. Cox, and we want to give a shout out to all the fans out there, stateside and worldwide, once again. We're continuing to support the show. Guys, we know we've been gone for a while, and we want to thank you for sticking around and checking us out once again. Just want to let y'all know that we're still working in the background and just to be a little transparent, I am raising my first child and this is a little bit harder than I thought it would be. Juggling the time and trying to get your time management in order seems to be a little bit harder than I thought it would be, but your boy is taking time. I make sure that I've been rested and now I'm coming back with an episode here. So we want to thank all y'all for continuing to support the show. So thank you for tuning in as always. As a reminder, you can check us out on our website, vaultclassicpod.com. That's vaultclassicpod.com. You can go there, check out the website, all of the back interviews, as well as our featured episodes with some of our featured guests. You can check out our guest profiles on there as well. In the bottom left-hand corner, you can click the microphone shaded in yellow. That is our Buy Me A Coffee page. You can go to that Buy Me A Coffee page and support us monetarily. Drop a small donation to show your appreciation and help us keep the vault open for many years to come. So please make sure you're visiting our website to do that. And of course, once you get to the website, you can get to all of our social media handles, TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, or is it X now? (laughs) You can get all those handles, whatever they call them there to join and connect with us there as well. Once again, vaultclassicpod.com. As we always say here on The Vault, our motto is hashtag open the vault, hashtag nothing but the classics or MBTC. And today we have a very special bonus episode my perspective on hip hop turning 50. Yes, this whole year, we have been seeing all the celebrations, the anniversaries, the programming, everything put in place for the 50th year of hip hop this year in 2023. And we are just passing that birthday of August 11th this past week. And man, the celebrations that we have seen and the concerts, the 50th anniversary hip hop concert in Yankee Stadium, we've seen a lot of extravaganzas, the amount of artists that have come together for these concerts and for these celebrations has been nothing short of extraordinary. And it does sort of make you think if you are a fan and if you've been a fan for well over 30 to 35 years, like I have been, it makes you marvel to think that what a miracle this is. The fact that we had so many icons and legends, the ones that are still around with us today, to celebrate 50 years of this genre, this music, this culture, making its way across the world, across the globe, and across cultures, races, religions, anything you can think about that hip-hop has touched every type of person in this world, no matter what and where you've been or what you've been through. And that, I think, is amazing and a miracle in itself. So definitely shout out to all the icons and all of the pioneers to help to bring us hip hop and make this possible for us to not just listen and enjoy, but also to partake in the culture ourselves, meaning that it wasn't just for one area, for one coast, for one country, for one people. It's meant for everybody. So we celebrate and salute hip hop in its 50th year. And we wanted to give a little bit of our perspective of hip hop in its 50th year and give you a couple of our favorites 
and also some things that we want to commemorate as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of hip hop. So we all know the story well, but for those of you who don't, we're going to give you a very quick abridged Cliff Notes version of the story of how hip hop quote unquote began. And uh, this is the universally accepted story of the beginnings of hip hop. Now, many people have been out there over the last few years. Many different groups have been out there saying that obviously this was not the beginning of what hip hop was. They'll point to many different things and saying that, oh, people rhyme for so many years, the last poets, other people, and all oh, people break dance for everything. But just follow me for a bit as we go through this story. So the year is 1973. It's August. In the Bronx, Clive Williams, who his family's originally from Jamaica and they moved to New York. Clive Williams and his sister Cindy Williams are getting ready to go back to school. And Cindy wants to raise some money for new clothes for back to school. And she comes up with the bright idea to throw a party in their neighborhood. They would use that as a way to be able to help her raise money for new clothes for school. And she wanted to get her brother Clive to DJ for her. Now, Clive was a DJ. He had just turned 18 that year, and he went by the DJ name of DJ Cool Hurt. He agreed to DJ this party. They made flyers. They passed it around the neighborhood. So many of you have seen those flyers now, charging ladies 25 cents and guys 50 cents to get in. Pretty good deal, right? (laughs) I mean, you got to think about roller quarters can get you and your homeboys and homegirls in. So the party was to be in the building of 1520 Sedgwick Avenue in the rec room in the Bronx. So the party starts. During this party, everyone is having a good time. They're dancing, everybody's hanging out. And then as Clive is DJing, he puts on two copies of James Brown's Sex Machine album on. And he puts both copies on his turntables. And he cues up the song, give it up and turn it loose. And he drops the needle and switches between the two records during this one particular instrumental break. In essence, extending that instrumental break, giving the partygoers that are in the party an extended break to dance to a la breakdancing. Through the night, as he's playing these beat breaks, he grabs the mic and he says some words, a lot of them which are his trademark phrases. Some of them are lines similar to, to the beat, y'all, you don't stop. Talking about the B-boys and B-girls wanting them to get down. And this constitutes a big portion of this party, which went all the way in to 4 a.m. that morning, the next morning. <laughs> now, let's be clear. Rhyming words and phrases over beats the art of breakdancing, and even scratching and cutting was not invented right then and there and not even invented by Cool Herc himself. But it has been universally accepted that these elements of emceeing, DJing, and breakdancing by what was called then B-boys and B-girls, it was the first time that they all came together in one place at one time recognized by these group of peoples to bring all these elements together, kind of like a mix. Thus... What you had in this event was the seed for hip hop as a music genre, as a culture, and as a societal phenomenon being planted right there at 1520 Sedgwick Avenue in the Bronx. So this is the story how hip hop and its seed was planted and how eventually that seed sprouted up to become an even bigger movement throughout the 1970s. And as we get into the 1970s through the mid 70s into the late 70s, hip hop starts to grow. Eventually, you have lots of more DJs, and also eventually at that time, MCs start to pop up as a result of that. By the late 1970s, you have groups putting out records, in particular, the Sugar Hill Gang putting out the famous record, Rapper's Delight, in 1979. As we get into the early 1980s, you start seeing other acts start to pop up. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, The Treacherous Three, 
the Funky Four plus one more, the Cold Crush Brothers. And then you start to get your first solo act, who was a person signed to a major record label deal at that time was the first one, none other than Curtis Blow. So I call that first era you have from 1970s to the mid-1980s, the foundational period. This is when the elements of hip-hop are sort of being laid, the foundation for the culture is being laid, acts are starting to come out, eventually record labels are starting to sign acts, record labels are being formed, and you have DJs that, of course, are picking up careers, MCs start careers, b-boying is really big in that time, breakdancing becomes a huge part of the culture, and at some point in time, Graffiti art becomes the fourth element of hip-hop during this foundational period from the 70s into the mid-80s. Now, from the mid-80s into the early 90s, I have what you would likely call the recognition era into the first golden era. Now, I say that to say by the mid-1980s, you saw a lot of labels start to sprout up, most notably Def Jam, and you saw the emergence of big groups and big acts, the Beastie Boys, LL Cool J, Run DMC, became huge acts, acts that were not only big in the hip-hop community, but gained a little bit of crossover success along the way, especially Run DMC. They were, to me, as I like to say, the first rap supergroup, and they really set the tone for the culture in the 1980s. During that foundational period into that recognition era, they really started to turn things up when it came to hip-hop. And at this point, they had a crossover with Aerosmith, and then this leads you into the late 1980s that gets you into the point where a lot of historical scholars will say that period from 1986 on into the early 90s, say about 1990, as some of them will say, was the first golden era of hip hop. During this period between 1986 into 1990, you see a lot of the foundational acts uh, still kind of be in, in the picture, but then you see other acts like Ice T's emerge. You see. BDP come out, the Juice Crew come out, Big Daddy Kane as a solo artist, Eric B and Rakim, Cool G Rap and DJ Polo, Slick Rick, Public Enemy. All these acts that I'm naming became a part of the culture and they started putting out what we now know as classic music. And there was a bit of shift in the culture where we kind of knew at this point in time that hip hop was going to be something to stay. But as we got into the late 80s, we also got a expansion slightly out west from a lot of rappers and groups in the West Coast that were starting to emerge, most notably NWA. And we also started to see the emergence of some groups down South in the likes of the Ghetto Boys and also Two Live Crew. Well, this triumvirate, as we mentioned it, sort of gets into the point where hip hop then becomes a problem for some people in middle America and also in corporate America and for the government. Because rap started to transition from what it was in that recognition and golden era into this now portion heading out of the golden era to something that was a little bit more gangster. It was a little bit more rugged. It was raw. It was vulgar. It was obscene. It told tales of life that wasn't as rosy as some of most of America lived and a life that wasn't so perfect. And because of that, they sought to have hip hop banned. I mean, two live cruise case got so bad. It went all the way to the Supreme court. And because two live crew waged a battle, because it was decided that this was a form of expressing and freedom of speech. Oh, what happened after a while? They'll say, yeah, you can play these obscene records, but guess what? We're putting a sticker on this album to say that your parents should pay attention if you're below a certain age. <laughs> Hence, we had the parental advisory sticker, which is introduced sometime in the late 1980s into the 1990s. 
Now, from the early 90s into the mid 90s, I say you get into the transition period and commercial expansion. At this point, we start to see the West Coast emerge as a major, major player at that point. You see not just Ruthless Records and what they did with Above the Law, also with DOC, with NWA eventually them leaving. Ice Cube as a solo act, but then you see the emergence of Death Row and Dr. Dre as a solo artist and the emergence of Snoop Dogg and the Dog Pound and Nate Dogg and Warren G, G Funk, DJ Quick. These type of artists have started to make it big and hip hop transitions again. And it becomes at that point in time starts to expand a little bit more commercially. And we're starting to see now these rappers on a lot of late night talk shows. The Arsenio Hall show is key in this particular time period because it was one of the biggest late night shows for those of the hip hop demographic. Then from the mid to late 1990s, you get into a commercial explosion. And also this is the corporate introduction. Now, the mid-1990s, you could say, was possibly also another golden era in hip-hop for some people of a certain generation. But for those who had been a hip-hop from the beginning, they saw this game transforming from something that started strictly on the street corners and in the parks to something that became, oh, this is now profitable to companies? How many people remember the brands that hip-hop started appearing in? You started seeing stuff, obviously. Crossover stuff by Starter. Timberland, other clothing lines. Starter, Nike, Reebok, Sprite. Remember all of those brands used to integrate some sort of hip-hop flavoring into their advertisements and marketing? It's no surprise at all that it started happening that way. The demographic in America was starting to change. What kids listened to was starting to change. What we were transitioning to in regards to the genres and what we thought was cool started to change. It all started to change. And so you saw that when corporate brands realized that, hey, marketing to this hip hop audience, this generation that's coming up, that within about 10 years or so is going to become major consumers is not actually a bad idea. So while some corporate brands still shied away from them, some stepped up and said, oh, yes, we will. Absolutely. Then from, I would say, the 2000s into the mid 2000s, the commercial explosion continues. More and more brands start to get involved in hip hop brands and featuring hip hop stars and people of the culture in their advertisement and also marketing towards that demographic. And at this time, the South, which had always kind of been around back from the eighties up and through the nineties, then exploded. And the Southern expansion was absolutely crazy. And at that point in time, they started to encroach on a lot of territories that were held by both coasts. Mid 2000s to late 2000s was like camera action. The integration into society is full. You have hip hop stars that are movie stars now. There are definitely a lot of crossover when it comes to entertainment. They're involved in so many different things like their business ventures now. Like so many people within the hip hop industry now are starting to create multi-million and some of them billion dollar brands. And it really is starting to become something where, hey, the show's all here. Everybody's starting to get paid off of it. Well, most people were starting to get paid off of it, except for, in some cases, the producers and the artists themselves. Whole nother conversation. Early 2010s to mid-2010s, you sort of go from, like I say, goes from snap to trap, where those of us who know in the mid-2000s into the late 2000s, you had sort of this thing of with sap music, which came from the South. And then eventually trap music, which started as just a term that was coined by certain few rappers from a certain area. Then eventually trap music turned into a subgenre itself that eventually took over a good portion of the industry where all the artists were starting to do trap something. It was not just trap hip hop. 
it was starting to be trap R&B, trap soul, trap j- whatever. And then it really grew out of control. From the mid-2010s into the 2020s, I say is the point of experimentation and also dilution. The sound of hip-hop really started to go way out into the fringes as far as what people were willing to follow as far as the artists that were considered to be the best in the game. And the industry became diluted. It seemed like at some point in time, there was a barrier of entry. And obviously we knew that the record labels held the key. They were the ones who held the key to see who made it and who did not. And if you were independent, you had to have a lot of cash in order to be able to even compete just on a little level with the major labels. But at this point with the way that how the game is and people were able to put out music so quickly, not even have to go to a studio, not even learning how to how to produce music. And in some cases, not even really learning how to rap properly. <laughs> Anybody could get into music and you could release it without not even being signed to a label. You could do it at the ease of your fingertips sitting from your computer at home made this industry so diluted. And we're at to the point where we're at right now. Not all bad things, obviously. We've gotten to a point now where hip hop is mainstream. I mean, it's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. If you could see anything what's happened over the last 50 years, but especially over the last 25 years since 1998, hip hop has become something that brands are no longer afraid to reach out and tap into nowadays. And as Rock Kim said earlier this week, you can't sell anything to a certain demographic without putting hip hop in it, and you can't do it without hip hop. And that's saying something. Because he's absolutely right. So I wanted to go a little bit into some of my favorite albums over these decades. And I'm going to take them in decades starting from the 80s. From the 70s, we didn't really have a whole lot of albums out there. I would say, okay, yeah, I can pull from these and say that this is a a great album that I'll pull from. Um, The 80s is my earliest point of reference. So my favorite album from the 1980s is Eric B. and Rakim's Paid in Full. Yes, (laughs) I know some people out there will agree with me and some of you will not. Again, I'm saying it's my favorite album of the 1980s, Eric B. and Rakim, Paid in Full. Now, those of you who know me and know what I think about Rakim and how I respect him, to me, I think he is, number one, without a shadow of a doubt, the best MC of all time and the GOAT. Um, when it comes to this before him there were none after him there were many trying to replicate what he did and he was the first or one of the first to be out there to give that rhyme style out there in the mainstream to be so complex and so skilled but yet so smooth with it and Peyton Full is just up there with some of the best albums of all time but a great great album and really a part of a three album run which a lot of people don't necessarily mention because it's a historic run with Peyton Full follow the leader, and let the rhythm hit him. My honorable mentions from the 1980s, obviously, Public Enemies, to take the nation of millions to hold us back, which many people cite as the greatest hip-hop album of all time. Follow the leader by Eric B. and Rakim, N.W.A. Straight Outta Compton, and Boogie Down Productions, BDPs, Criminal Minded. If you see most of these albums, they come from that famed two-year stretch of 1987 to 1988. And it's not a big surprise why so many people are saying those are two of the greatest years in hip-hop, and we'll probably cite those as their top two. My favorite album of the 1990s, hip-hop-wise, I have to go with Nas Illmatic. And there, this is really hard for me to choose, but when I think about getting into the throes of being an absolute hip-hop junkie, listening to Nas's Illmatic and being blown away by the lyrics, being blown away by the production, being blown away by the imagery of Nas's lyrics as well and his flow is what got me into one, not only to dig deeper into rap and to hip hop, and then also want to be a practitioner myself. It made me want to rap. And when you talk to a lot of MCs who were around my age at that time, 
I think many of them will cite Illmatic as one of their inspirations to rap as well. And my honorable mentions from the 1990s, so many, but I'll just go through a few of them. Obviously, Biggie's Ready to Die, and also Life After Death, Reasonable Doubt by Jay-Z, his debut album, A Tribe Called Quest, Midnight Marauders, Dr. Dre's The Chronic, Wu-Tang Clan's Enter the Wu-Tang 36 Chambers, and Raekwon's Built Only for Cuban Links. Now, there's lots of others on there that I can name, but those are just the ones I'm going to limit it to that, that right there. Obviously, that time period between 94 and 96 is absolutely deadly, but lots of great albums in the 90s. I'm just going to limit it to those. My favorite album of the 2000s, Jay-Z's The Blueprint. And this is from a Nas fan, but I got to give Hove his props right here. The Blueprint was a soundtrack during my college years and has maintained 20 plus years afterwards as an exceptional album. Plus the mystique that it dropped on 9-11 too. Honorable mentions for the 2000s, Nas is Stillmatic, Project Pack's Mr. Don't Play, which if you guys heard our review on that one, you know how much Project Pack and 3-6 Mafia, how big an influence they were to me during my college days. And big ups to, of course, Project Pat and Hypnotize My Camp out of Memphis. Kanye West, Late Registration, and also Graduation. 50 Cent's Get Rich or Die Trying, and Lupe Fiasco, The Cool, Commons B, and The Games Documentary. Again, lots of other great albums to pick from from the 2000s, but those are the ones that came immediately to my mind at that time as far as my favorite albums during that decade. The 2010s, my favorite album during this decade, None other than Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly. I mean, incredible album. An album that after I listened to Good Kid, Mad City, I didn't think there was anything he could do to top something like that. It was an amazing work of art. And then he puts out To Pimp a Butterfly, and I'm completely blown away. An album that so many people have written think pieces about, that there have been a lot of opinions about, but from Kendrick fans to those who are not big Kendrick fans. But as flawlessly an album put together on this side of the 2000s as any album, out there and it's still a, a frequent listen to that I pull up to every once in a while on my phone when I'm headed home or when I'm just chilling. Honorable mentions from that decade, Good Kid Mad City by Kendrick as well. I just told y'all about that incredible album. 2014 Forest Hills Drive by J. Cole. Uh, to me, I think his best album. Bandana by Freddie Gibbs and Mad Lib. A great run by them putting albums together during that particular time. I mean, just phenomenal album. Benny the Butcher, The Plugs I Met, 1999, which really isn't an album, but I'm including that by Joey Badass. Uh, goodness, just amazing work by MC that was only 17 years old. Damn by Kendrick. Take Care by Drake, which to me is my favorite listen to from him. I went to that Club Paradise tour during 2012, and it was amazing. And it just kind of reinforced to me just how much of a force he was during that time. Rhapsody's Eve, which was probably my favorite album by a female MC that decade. Deeply Rooted by Scarface, one of the last albums he's put out. And for nostalgic purposes and also to pay respect, the late great Nipsey Hussle, Victory Lap, may he rest in peace. And for the 2020s, I actually have a couple of albums that are my favorites. My favorites from the 2020 are Nas's King Disease 2 and 3. It's hard for me to pick between either one of those. Now, for definitely for for sentimental reasons, I picked King's Disease too because this came out about a month before I got married. And a lot of the things and themes that he was talking about on these songs resonated with me so deeply. And I would say there are a couple of songs on there that are questionable that I would be like, eh, I don't know if we should have kept those on there. But the majority of them during that first half are pretty good. Once you got into that second half of that album from store run all the way down to Nas is good is about as great as, as a, a run on an album as I've ever heard. And then King's Disease 3 is absolutely crazy to think that he could cop something like that 
after he dropped both King Disease 2 and also Magic, it's just amazing. And I haven't heard anything during this time period that has been able to top those two. Now, the honorable mentions that I have during this time, Kendrick's Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers, It's Almost Dry by Pusha T, Magic by Nas, King's Disease by Nas as well, and then also 2000 by Joey Badass. And some people say, oh, there's a couple other albums you could sort of put out there, but to me, I'll just put those albums as the favorite ones that I've listened to. And again, these are favorites, not greatest. Now to end this podcast, I do want to go through a little bit about the most tragic losses that we've had in hip hop. And I'm going to go through losses of rappers that were fairly active and um, the ones that we've sort of had to deal with with them that really kind of hit us all in the gut at that time because they were devastating to what these artists meant to us and everything else. For the 1980s, probably the most tragic loss has to be Scott LaRock and him of Boogie Town Production and the partner of KRS-One. This was one that definitely was tragic because of what Boogie Down Productions was starting to accomplish and because they were on their way up. And as a result of a moment of violence, Scott LaRock lost his life and he was no longer. So therefore it left KRS-One to be able to hold not just the banner of Boogie Down Productions, but of ever all the dreams and hopes they had together as a group and as a duo and collective heading into hip hop's future by himself. And he did more than an admirable job, of course, of doing so. In the 1990s, I shouldn't even have to say it, but you already know, Tupac Shakur and Biggie, Notorious B.I.G., Christopher Wallace. Two debts that obviously we know the story behind those two. Six months apart from each other, Tupac being killed in September in 1996 in Las Vegas, and not even six months afterwards, in March of 1997, Biggie's killed after attending a party at the Soul Train Awards in LA and neither of their murders have been solved. Now, you talk about two gigantic figures that lose their life. And not only that, but because there was beef between the two of them during that time is something that's absolutely devastating and something that we have still not come to grips with now more than 25 years after both of them have passed away. And to consider also the music that two of them have put out that they have impacted the world so greatly with the very short lives that they had is something that we're still also trying to come to grips with as well. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Those were the biggest losses, most tragic losses that I believe of the 90s. In the 2000s, the losses and debts of Jam Master J, Big Pun, and also Proof, famously of D12. Now, Big Pun died of a heart attack. He had health problems. A lot of it attributed during his, due to his weight. This was one that was particularly tragic, but he was also on the ascent, had just really started his come up from his breakout album earlier in the 90s with Capital Punishment. And then was just due as he died to release his second album, Yeah Baby, which was the follow up. And to be able to see that he wasn't able to realize his true potential of how great he could have been for the talent that he had was devastating. Proof also died due to gun violence. And it was something that when you talk to that group of D12 and Eminem, uh, that Eminem and Proof were not on great terms when he died. And that uh, that's something that when you think, of course, historically in the underground, the type of reputation that Proof had, it hit a lot of folks in the underground, especially in Detroit hip hop, hit them very, very hard. And Jam Master J is one that we're all kind of still scratching our heads about because we're still trying to figure out exactly what happened and nobody really still knows. Obviously, we have ideas and there are conspiracy theories and also theories of the crime as well. But Jam Master J... In particular, when it came to MCs and groups from Queens and what he meant to them, how big he was and being part of the pioneers and forerunners and run DMC 
and him losing his life to the based on the fact that, you know, people that I guess he thought he could trust ended up betraying him. And um, it was a tragic loss. And it was something that I remember that when it happened, how devastated the community hip of hip hop was when he passed away. And in the 2010s, Sean Price, Fife Dog, Nipsey Hussle, Sean Price dying suddenly, uh, something that nobody saw coming. And as I said in the post, when I commemorated, you know, his death and said, told, said, rest in peace. I said he was MC's MC. And no if fans or butts about it. Started with Duck Down Records as Ruck. Eventually went by his old his own name. Released a number of mixtapes and albums as a solo artist where he became the very feared MC and bars for days with Sean Price had. Not just an MC's MC, but a respected MC amongst his people in his craft. And when he died, you saw the tributes come in, including from his old partner, Rock from Helter Skelter, which um, now we're still also trying to come to terms with the fact that an MC of his skill level is no longer around anymore either. Five Dog was something personally that hit me very, very hard that I'm still trying to accept because I related to him personally. I was short like Fife. I was of Caribbean descent like Fife was as well. And I could also dealt with a lot of personal and confidence issues when it came to a lot of those things went that Fife also dealt with, but he could get busy on the mic and Fife, no matter what anybody tells you and the members of tribe called quest will tell you Fife was the beating heart of a tribe called quest. And when he passed away, we thought that that was it. That was out of the game. We didn't know whether or not we would get another album from them. And then they announced that they had had material ready for a last album. And that album came out later on that year. And God, it made so many of us happy, especially those of us who were Tribe fans to hear Fife's voice one last time. And we also heard another album from Fife as of last year, material that he recorded before he died. And um, man, just such a tragic loss, him losing his life due to complications of diabetes. And really, man, one of the more tragic ones out there when we talk about all together, you won't get one more tragic than Nipsey Hussle. Now, Nipsey, everybody knows his story. A brother, man, that obviously was a gang member, but definitely turned his life around, got some success in the music industry, was somebody that was respected by people, not just where he was from in California and in the West Coast, but across the nation. People saw the light in this young man. And then for him to die at his clothing store, somebody rolling up, pulling up and shooting him in front of all these people, knowing that he was eventually starting to get his shine and people were recognizing him from his work for that victory lap album. And for what he was planning to do business wise, entertainment wise, it was something that was a devastating loss. And now we see people pay tribute to Nipsey and his hustle and the way that he carried himself with that checkered flag and TMC. The marathon continues. The marathon continues. And the one death that I'll have to say in the 2020s that we've had a lot, Pop Smoke, King Vaughn, other rappers that are out there, the one that is probably the most devastating to me and my generation and those who are who pay attention to hip-hop for a while was DMX. And to see DMX, who was such an integral part of hip-hop in the late 90s into the 2000s, who was such a unique presence and a unique voice, who gave voice to so many people's pain, depression, struggle to see him pass away. And the manner in what had happened was something that was heartbreaking for all of us. So rest in peace to them and rest in peace to all the rappers that lost their lives over the years. Lots of legends passed away at the beginning of the decade. A few of the rappers out there, a lot of the pioneers, um, hurricane G just to name a few. There's a lots of people out there that I can, I'm going to miss some, but rest in peace to all of them, all the people that have lost their lives over the years. And we hope that they do find peace, but, 
this is where we are. And this is where hip hop has done in 50 years. And think about where hip hop was now to where it is. Before they thought hip hop was a fad. Then they thought it was just for the ghetto. Then it became revived and cool at the same time. Then it became revered, sought after, admired, and now essential to any major brand of success that wishes to sell to a certain demographic. And you cannot have a conversation about music in this world without including hip-hop. And as I said on my post, as I commemorated the 50th birthday of hip-hop, 50 years later, and you still can't believe that hip-hop took it this far. Shout out to Biggie Smalls. That's our take, y'all. We'd love to hear from y'all in the comment sections and as well on social media. Hit us up. Let us know what you think. What are some of your favorite albums from those decades that we mentioned? Also, the tragic losses that I mentioned. What are some that hit you hard that you'll never forget and the reasons why? But hit us up on social media, TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, X, Threads as well. You can hit us there. Let's have the conversation. We love to keep it going. And that is going to wrap up yet another edition of The Vault. Please make sure you are visiting us at vaultclassicpod.com. That's vaultclassicpod.com. There you can learn more about the show, check out our past episodes, join our mailing list, leave a review, or if so inclined, you can leave us a voice note. Click the blue microphone in the bottom right-hand corner to leave us a voice note to let us know what you think about the show or to just show us some love. To support the show, click the coffee cup shaded in yellow in the bottom left-hand corner to access our Buy Me A Coffee page. On Buy Me A Coffee, you can give a small monetary donation to support the show to ensure that we can keep the vault open for many years to come. You can also visit us on social media at Vault Classic Pod on IG, Twitter, and on TikTok. Also hit us on YouTube and our Facebook page. Like and follow us on social media. Subscribe to the pod and the YouTube channel. We do it here all for you. We appreciate the support. And if you have a friend, tell a friend and make sure that that friend tells a friend. Always remember to keep your headphones on and your music loud, but not too loud. And as we close, we like to remind everyone to dream big because dreams are the basis for creation. Always create, motivate and elevate. Because you were never destined or created to stay stationary or ordinary in this life. And on that note, we say peace. Thank you for listening and coming into The Vault. Please subscribe and visit us at vaultclassicpod.com. That's vaultclassicpod.com.